This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The Prince of Pot and his wife, Jody Emery, were arrested Wednesday night. Yesterday, Toronto police invaded their uh, pot shops in uh, all over the place, including one here in uh, Hamilton called Cannabis Culture. With pot technically still being legal, uh, still being not legal, what is the deal? Uh, I find this just wacko. And I'll uh, bring in uh, Dan Malik and we'll talk about it. But, you know, think of where we are with alcohol and how long it has taken to get to where we are. In other words, getting it into a grocery store. Do you honestly think that when the government legalizes this, they're going to make it easier to get than alcohol? Do you really think that? Because if you are, you're just plain stupid. Uh, And again, um, they're doing this to generate revenue. So they're going to open up some sort of little franchise store, whether it's an LCBO or a shopper's inside a shopper's drug mart. Who knows? But they'll be agency licensed, and it will be totally regulated, and it will just be like the old days of the LCBO, I say. Uh, let's bring in Dan Malik, health sciences professor, Brock University, author of When Good Drugs Go Bad, Opium Medicine and the Origins of Canada's Drug Laws. He is with us now. Hello, Dan. How are yeah. you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. We've had this discussion before. Are you surprised? And again, you know, I'm a supporter of legalized marijuana, but you know, I, I just, I just think this is an absolutely silly thing to be doing, and it, it amazes me that these people actually think that this will be the model moving forward. Am I out of line here? So you, you, you mean um, the dispensary thing to be doing the dispensary? Yeah, because I don't yeah. think that's the model. I don't think that's the model they're going to go with. It's going to be so tightly regulated. I think it's going to be just like alcohol was in the old days. No, yes. Well, uh, it's it's tough to predict. Um, the the model. I mean, I've I've always argued that uh, a best model for legalization is one that's fairly tightly regulated and then see how it goes and, and loosen it up over time, which is what happened with um, liquor. Um, but now, I mean, that's what happened across the country with liquor as it be- as prohibition ended across the country. But now we have so many different models, right, yeah. um, from what's happening in B.C. and Alberta, which is a much more liberal um, system to Ontario, um, to you know some other provinces that are even tighter um, regulated, more tightly regulated, nothing in supermarkets and stuff like that. Um, so it could be that they're looking at these models and saying, well, which one, as you say, you know, maximizes revenues, but also manages it in a way that, remember, part of it is, you're right, part of it is uh, revenue generation, part of it is, you know, just diverting it from an illegal market. Right. So if if you have something that's too tightly regulated, but people already have established ways of getting their hands on it, then it's kind of failed on one of the the main uh, reasons for doing this. Um, So uh, it may be that, you know, privately run dispensaries are not the way um, that this goes. But it could also be that, you know, if you have some fairly. What's going to happen is uh, industry will move into those, right? So cannabis um, cannabis culture is a fairly large distribution network Mm -hmm. right now, fully illegal what they're doing. Um, But it may be that that did you say fully legal or illegal? It's fully illegal. Yes, it's street uh, storefront sale of cannabis is illegal even if it's considered medical, right? Um, But it could also be you know we don't know what the what industry is saying to them because there's the Legal distributors through um, couriers and the online um, distribution networks, uh, and they may be saying, you know, we want to move into storefront. Um, we can do it better than the government, and, and there's there's a degree of 
Um, and you know what, Dan? Just sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with anything you yeah. say. And I want to say on record, I'm not against the storefront yeah. stuff. Yeah. But I don't see this government doing that. Mm-hmm. Just simply because uh, the way alcohol is strictly re- regulated. And I think if people th- if people see that you can buy pot in every corner, like coffee in a bagel, they're gonna flip. They're gonna flip. And and the and, and and the people that are against legalization of marijuana and any of this sort of stuff are, are going to raise hell, and so I really can't see it being you know I mean maybe it will be we don't know but I really can't see it being that open I can't see it being easier to get pot than it is booze or even yeah. or even as easy to get booze. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying, and and I think this is why we have to recognize that um, when when liquor came came. You know, from from prohibition became became legal again. Um, it was provincial, and then within the provinces, they had kind of regional standards. Like it was relatively loose in in the way. I mean, it was always in a, a liquor store, but when we got to sales in bars and that, they had rules that were flexible, and um, inspectors would kind of turn a blind eye to things that seemed to be okay in that community, right? So, so you can imagine, say, in Vancouver, in certain areas of Vancouver, and Toronto, and Hamilton, and other cities. Um, storefronts might be fine. So it might be the, the fact that that is permitted, but then the, at the municipal level, it has to be reg, um, uh, it has to be licensed or things like that. Like it could have that kind of patchwork so that the people in some communities where you say they would flip, and I agree, some people would absolutely flip if there was a, a cannabis shop opened up, would, they would not um, open it. Um, and this is also something that happened after Prohibition. There were areas that were considered dry and Went, and actually areas that were not dry, but mm-hmm. as soon as the LCBO wanted to move in to allow a, um, a store or a beverage room to open, uh, they went. these people went ballistic, and they petitioned the municipality and petitioned the, petitioned the federal uh, provincial government, and they got these things blocked. So it could be that the mechanism will be there, but then there has to be community consultation, which is another model from liquor. And, and another thing, too, Dan, is that remove the product even from the discussion. Remove the product mm-hmm. that we're talking about, which is a highly controversial issue about legalizing pot. Take that right out of the issue. Let's be honest. The guy that's running cannabis culture is running a large business. He's got a large franchise and distribution set up. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, he's in it to make money. And he's mm-hmm. trying to get in before the game officially starts. And he's, he's trying to get all of his ducks in a row so when the green flag comes down, he's already got a head start ahead of anybody else. And yep. that's, and at the end of the day, it's a sly business move, but it's cheating because we don't even know what the rules are yet. And the, and it hasn't even been made legal. So all this person is doing, and again, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with the model. I'm not disagreeing with the template, but let's be serious. The, you know, this guy is jumping the queue and trying to get his stuff all established before anybody else gets the green flag and lines up and does it responsibly the way the government wants it to do, wants uh, us to do it. And all this person is, is, is an overzealous businessman who's trying to get a jump start on it. And, you know, and not that I'm comparing the two, but very, very similar to the medical marijuana business. And I remember talking to them years ago and saying, well, this is a perfect setup if it ever does go legal. They would never talk about that. It was all yeah. about the medical marijuana oh, and, and all this. And now you talk to them. It's a completely different ballgame. But to actually be so arrogant as to open up a storefront and flash it in the face of police and the a face of law enforcement and counsel and whoever else is involved, you know, no wonder you're going to get shut out of business because you're just throwing up a red flag saying, hey, look at me, I'm being illegal. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, not to say too much about Mark Emery, but he, um, he has always been, even before pot was the issue for him, he was, he was big about running his businesses in a way that sort of flew in the face of the authorities. So exactly. I remember back when he lived in London, Ontario, he ran a, a bookstore uh, back before Sunday shopping was permitted. He would open every Sunday and he would, you know, he made an issue of this, right? So it, it, it's, it's something that he does. So it's not just the business thing. It's also the, the political. He's an activist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there's um, the issue of, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, you're, you're right, of the activism. But a lot of people say to him, look, you've got to stop this because legal is coming and you're just. You're screwing yourself. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. There's somebody sitting in the wings. There's a businessman sitting in the wings watching what Emery's doing and is Mm going to duplicate, if this model is approved, is going to duplicate everything he's done, is going to get the government approval to do it, and Emery's going to be sitting there with his thumb up his rear end wondering why the world is passing him by. Well, well, yeah, there is a bit of a reputational component to it, right? I mean, and and we can look, I mean, I'm a historian of of liquor and drugs, so I look at, again, the liquor uh, issue where after Prohibition ended, they looked at the reputations of the people they were about to license to open hotel beverage rooms because the, the stores were government-run, but the beverage rooms were private, and they looked at their reputation during Prohibition. And sometimes they said, oh, you know, that was just, he was just trying to make money. And sometimes it's like, this guy is a notorious bootlegger, and we're not going to license him. So that that's something that Emery is playing with. He's, he's playing with fire there. But maybe... Given what he's done before, he'll move on to something else that's controversial and silly. Wouldn't that be funny? So much for the pot cause. Let's move on to the yeah. next one. Uh, yeah. John writes an interesting note. He says, "We agree. Big government will ruin this. Uh, will he? He thinks we will. Will we be? Will we be buying it off the reserves like smokes now? Will this be? Will there be like a huge contraband in, industry like there is in cigarettes? It's really tough to say. Tobacco has its own unique sort of." Um, role within uh, Native Canadian culture, right? So um, it may be that it's just a, a taxation issue. Um, I, I really don't want to say, um, don't want to venture down that road. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's going to be, uh, you know, there, it will be taxed as part of it. Um, there will always be a, a, a group of people who want to get away from the tax, no matter what, how le- what the level of tax is. And what the government's job will be is to sort out you know, to find that happy medium of, you know, enough tax for decent revenue uh, and not enough that it will drive people into any contraband, whether it's um, no matter who, who it is that's distributing it. Where are we now, Dan, as far as legalization? I read something the other day that uh, it seems to be being delayed. Do we know where it is? Any sort of insight there? Haven't heard anything. No. Um, the last I heard, I was, you know, people I know at the LCBO were preparing, for, quote, preparing for cannabis, unquote. But then, uh, a while ago, we heard that it wasn't going to be following that model, but I really think that it's, yeah, it's it's, it's still uncertain. What do you I mean, think? The, the, what do the, you think the best model is, Dan? Yeah, you know, I, I I think that a blend of what will probably happen will be a blend of government sales and the on online sales, um, but it may be that the government just isn't willing to put up the. Um, the kind of capital needed for the storefronts, uh, and they may turn to license sales like happens in Colorado. It's really, it, it's hard to say which which model appealed to them the most. The report that they 
that was released a while ago was very, I, I thought it was, we talked about this, I said it was probably one of the, most, the blandest things I've read in a long time because it was so just kind of reasonable and nothing shocking in it as far as, you know, we have to do it in a measured way and, and that sort of thing. But it, yeah, it didn't give us any indication. Although it did say something about decoupling liquor and cannabis, so they wouldn't be sold together. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, right now, the thing about cannabis that's very different from liquor is how light and portable it is, right? So uh, uh, an online distribution system is, uh, like through the mail, is mm. much easier to run, yeah. even though now the LCBO has one. Um, but then also storefronts could, I mean, there's already an infrastructure for it within the private sector, right, even though they're all illegal, right? Dan Malik has been with us, health sciences professor, Brock University author, When Good Drugs Go Bad, Opium Medicine and the Origins of Canada's Drug Laws. Dan, as always, uh, thanks for the time. I'm sure we'll chat again. Thanks, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots of chatter in regard to uh, school closings. Ontario has put as many as 300 schools on the chopping block. The education minister, uh, Mitzi Hunter, says that hundreds of schools are underutilized or uh, dilapidated. I remember, um, I guess it must have been 10 years ago now, when uh, my oldest daughter, who's now in high school, uh, was in public school, and, and I think she'd just gone from kindergarten to grade one. New neighborhood, uh, new school, and, you know, we bought our house. When we bought our house, we went to the town uh, because it wasn't built when we bought it. It was just a lot. We went to the town. We looked at the plan. We wanted to know where all the schools were, where, you know, they showed you where the church was, churches were going to be, showed you where the, the little strip malls were going to be, the parks were going to be, and all that sort of stuff. And you can see what the neighborhood looks like uh, before you actually move into it. And one of the reasons we, we got the house where we did was because of all of those amenities and, and the great neighborhood that it was about to become. Uh, and then two years into Alicia's uh, school career there, grade one or so, uh, they said, uh, well, we're building across here, so we're bumping all these kids out, and we're going to send you and bus you to other schools that aren't as full, that are like a mile away and stuff. Out of our neighborhood, across a major highway, kids can't walk home, all that sort of stuff. So, uh, you know, I put on my demonstration hat. We all went to meetings, and we tried to figure out what the hell was going on. And school board meetings can be a... Uh, a freak show at the best of times um, on both sides, the parents and the people who are in charge, uh, who are, um, well, I don't want to spend too much time on that. So long story short was we all sat there and fought for our school and said, we, you know, we don't want our kids. This neighborhood's growing. It's exploding. We, we, we want, you know, we want the schools that were supposed to be here, not the, you know, not busing our kids to some other neighborhood that's a, a mile or two down the road. And long story short, it took a couple of meetings, and since then, there has been two additions built on this school, and it still has portables, because the community is growing so much. So rather than seeing that in the future and just building the school, they just started shipping kids all over the place. So families would arrive, they'd unpack their stuff, they'd move their you know, into their house, and then they'd bust their schools, kids to schools like a mile or two away. When you can see the school from my house, my front lawn. And uh, so, you know, I remember when all this was going down, and I remember saying to my wife, remember at one time they were busing us all? They were thinking like that was the best solution. And then since then, not only have they built one, but they built a second addition onto this school. 
And it just, it, it really made me feel that these guys really don't have a freaking clue what they're doing. They really don't. And what happens is the squeaky wheel gets the grease. If the parents mobilize, if the parents make enough noise, if the parents are concerned, they can change behavior. And what I really found was, and, and it's great we had these meetings and such and got the, the chance to express ourselves, but I was really surprised at how ill-prepared everyone on the other side was. And it was very politically correct. You know, they didn't want to, uh, they didn't want to hear anything about busing from one neighborhood to another. I mean, da-da-da-da-da. And they started painting these parents as if, you know, they were, um, that they were just looking after themselves. And that wasn't the case at all. It's the whole neighborhood. It's the development of a brand new neighborhood. And it just surprised me on uh, how quickly they changed their mind, how quickly they not only changed their mind, but started building twice. And again, it just, it, it proved to us that these people really don't know what they're doing. And until the parents speak up, and, and of course, I guess, threaten with a vote, uh, they don't do anything. So it, it's great that, and, and I encourage all parents, if you're in this situation, uh, as much of a hassle it is, as it is, is to get involved. Uh, simply because if you do, uh, then you're heard. And because and, a lot of these people don't do their R&D. Uh, they, they just don't do the research. And they're not aware, uh, which is why they hold these meetings, but only certain people go to the meetings, only the activist people go, da-da-da-da. So they just blow it all over and, oh, you know, we tried, and this is what we got. And then they wonder why everybody's unhappy. So if you are in this situation and you think you've got a case, stand up for it. And that's how government works, with feedback from both sides. Uh, Ontario, as I mentioned, thinking of uh, 300 schools on the chopping block. Uh, the education minister, Mitzi Hunter, says... Uh, it's due to just, and this is what happens, neighborhoods uh, get old, the kids move out, the, uh, the families haven't transitioned yet, new people haven't come in yet. Uh, so there's that sort of lull. Uh, here's a clip from Mitzi Hunter, the education minister. So it's important that, um, you know, we respect the role of the locally elected school boards as they are leading this process in their communities together with their municipalities, with, uh, with parents and with communities, Mr. Speaker. And we know that these are very tough decisions. So uh, there you have it. And, and I'll give you one more example before we give our guest on. My parents are still in the original home that we all grew up in. They've been there since 1965, <laughs> you know. And I remember when, you know, we all went to school there, blah, 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 blah. And uh, as the neighborhood got older, 20 years or so, and all the kids became teenagers and went to post-secondary, then eventually moved out. And then it's just like a bunch of old people that are living in these neighborhoods or older people living in these neighborhoods. Uh, and the schools sort of started to subside. Fast forward to today, you go to my parents' house, which was literally three or four you know, uh, doors down from the school. We live very close to the school. You go there and sit in their front window from nine and, uh, you know, from like 8.30 to 9 in the morning or 3 to 3.30 in the afternoon. It's jammed. That little wee school that we went to as kids and that saw a bit of a decline after 20 years is now busier than it has ever been. Because the old people are leaving, younger families are coming into this established neighborhood, and they're taking it over like, you know, when, we, when it was built however many years ago. 
So there is a cycle here, and I think we've got to be aware of that. Let's bring in Susan McKenzie, Media Relations Spokesperson, Ontario Alliance Against School Closures, and is with us now. Hello, Susan. How are you today? I'm fine, Scott. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. So what's the big challenge here? What's the big issue? Is this any different than just updating things? The only the only difference, you know, is according to your scenario 10 years ago, is the government really has a hand in this. The ministry is really coming down hard on school boards. They are giving the directives. It's a blame game between school boards and the ministry. Right. They they blame each other. There's nothing getting accomplished. Um, and this, the amount of school closures that are coming up exceeds 300. When Liz Sandals was Minister of Education just over a year ago, the number was 600 schools. And Mitzi Hunter ran from media the other day during her scrum because she couldn't give them an answer. It took her two days to come up with an answer, and she called the number arbitrary. So what are the reasons for the schools being on the chopping block? Underutilized, dilapidated, that happens. Uh, neighborhoods turn over. But can you get rid of a central uh, uh, establishment, a central uh, building like that in a neighborhood like a school just because the neighborhood's aging? They, they are doing it. Um, we have rural and northern communities, um, you know, where bus rides are going to be equivalent to classroom instruction time. Um, when schools mm. close, single school communities are losing their only school. Then you can, you know, get into the urban centers where you have very fragile neighborhoods, low-income neighborhoods. Um, they're being ripped apart as well. Why are these schools underutilized? It, it's shifting enrollment, declining enrollment, and like you said, these older neighborhoods, established neighborhoods, are now turning over. I'm in an established neighborhood. I've been here for almost 30 years. Younger families are starting to move in. Yeah. And that's the thing, too. If, you know, these neighborhoods get to 20 and 30 years old and they've taken the school out, then why would any families want to move back in? That's just it. It's, it's taking away from, from the ability of families to make their decisions based on the schools in the areas that they want to live. And when they do make those decisions and a school is ripped out of their community, they're bust, you know, three, four, six, ten kilometers down the road in the, in the urban centers, but in the, the rural areas, they're on the bus for up to four hours a day return. So how do you balance this? How do you, how do you uh, use underutilized schools? I mean, you know, if you're dilapidated, you've got to tear down and rebuild anyway. Um, so I'm not sure how much of an issue that is, and, and they don't seem to be too uh, shy to tear something down and rebuild it. What about underutilized? How do we, you know, as we've mentioned, in these neighborhoods that have moved on, how do we keep schools there? How do we use them until the population comes back around? Because obviously housing stock is at a minimum. Well, it's always puzzled me how the ministry says that it's costing, it's costing us money to maintain these empty classrooms. For me, if I'm not using a room in my house, I shut the door and I close the heat vents. Yeah. It's as simple as that. It doesn't need to be cleaned. So, you know, there's, there's a hidden agenda there and also the agenda to balance the books before the next election. They want to get a lot of these schools off the books. Do you think that's what it's about? Do you think it's Absolutely. about freeing, freeing up money? Absolutely, and it's on the backs of our students and our communities. Uh, what are you finding out, what are you hearing from parents? Oh, 
what are we hearing from them? Maybe it should be what aren't you hearing from parents. Exactly. It's what we're not hearing. Um, we started out um, mostly focusing on smaller communities, you know, rural and northern areas, because they were the sacrificial lambs. They're single school communities that will be gutted. Um, and then it started moving into more of the urban areas. And now we've got, you know, Toronto citizens following our Facebook page, asking questions, writing us. So it's every corner of the province. So what, where, where do you see all of this going? I mean, obviously, uh, it's gaining momentum. Lots of people are talking about it. Where do you think this is going? It's out of control. Um, I don't think Minister Hunter has a good handle on her portfolio. She has, you know, two or three scripted comments and phrases that she uses all the time and it's always about how much they've put into building new schools and you know how easy it is for kids to transition and they love picking new mascots and new school names and really you know what ground level it is not like that at all students are struggling with these closures she is so out of touch and if if it continues this way without a moratorium they won't be reelected next year. Uh, do you do you foresee the government changing on this in any way? I mean, is it is it written in stone that three hundred have to be closed? Um, they're basing it on underutilization, but they're also closing schools that are eighty ninety percent capacity. Uh, they're not taking into consideration that the school has adult education plans that have alternative learning plans, that this space is being utilized. And because it's not generating revenue, they're closing it down. They're saying it's underutilized. And there's, there's a lot of programs that happen in these schools, um, immigration, um, in, indigenous programs, things like that. These, these communities are being ripped apart. Uh, do you get the feeling that the government is listening? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And they voted on Tuesday night. Every liberal, every liberal member that was in the House voted against a moratorium. They were whipped. What should uh, parents do? What, what advice do you have for, for parents that are facing this sort of dilemma? lobby their school boards, attend every meeting, if you can. Some school boards are three times the size of Prince Edward Island, geographically. Hmm. Um, the central school board system isn't working. You know, there's, there's a wall up. People cannot physically get to, to board meetings. Um, their websites don't indicate their long-term pupil accommodation review plans. They're only posting, you know, what they're doing this year you know, two or three pupil accommodation reviews when really it's over a span of three or four years that you're looking at 600 schools in this province that will close. Uh, do they tell you how many they're going to build? <laughs> they, you know what, we really haven't kept track, but they, they do tout that during every question period on the ministry website. They're always talking about all the new schools that they've built but they don't, they, you know, they're there for the ribbon cutting for the new schools. Yeah. But they're never there for a pupil accommodation review committee meeting. How does this affect the students when there's rumor of a school closing down or one does in a neighborhood? Well, schools are a safe place to be. These kids spend more time in school than they do at home. Um, their friends are there. 
their extracurricular activities after school. Um, the secondary school students that have part-time jobs after school, they lose the, the school in their community, and they're bused halfway across town or ha- halfway across the county. They lose all that. They fear that. Susan McKenzie has been with us, Media Relations Spokesperson for Ontario Alliance Against School Closure. Susan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Let's bring in Annie Kidder. Annie Kidder, of course, Executive Director, People for Education. She is with us now. Hello, Annie. How are you today? I am very well, thank you. Your thoughts on the school closures. How do we balance, obviously, areas that are more vacant than others, others that are being developed? How do you balance all this, especially with older neighborhoods where the people in the, in the neighborhood might be older, the kids might have moved on, yet the neighborhood hasn't turned over yet? Well, I think in particular, we've got to look at the, the issue for rural areas and the, the funding formula as it currently uh, is, you know, designed doesn't work for, uh, for rural areas or for northern Ontario. And I think that we've got to do a better job in Ontario, you know, thinking about it not just in terms of education, but planning and, you know, what do we want our small towns to survive and how are we going to make sure that happens? So the funding formula needs updating. Parts of it are still the same as it was in 1999. There are times when schools have to close. It's always painful. Um, but there, you know, there are situations sometimes in, in urban areas where, you know, by closing a school, you may end up with a, with a better facility that serves kids better um, and that they don't have to travel that far. But the situation in rural areas is really problematic. So how does the government balance this? How do you do this? How do you, I mean, obviously each situation has to be handled differently. Well, it does, but, and, you know, so, and we all have to balance this. You have to kind of balance cost, uh, with, uh, with quality of life. Um, you know, part of it comes down to paying taxes, as I always like to say. Um, but so that we have to, we have to make a kind of collective decision again about, you know, you know, people out there in rural areas grow our food, you know, cut down our trees, mine our mines. Um, we want to make sure that their kids can go to schools that have good educations in them. And I think, I mean, I'm not saying that schools are bad in rural areas or northern Ontario, but we know from our research that in a school in a small town, you're less likely to have guidance counselors or a librarian or access to a psychologist or a music teacher. And, and we don't think that's fair or right. Um, and it's very hard for school boards to keep those schools open because the funding formula just doesn't work well for them now. And I think that, you know, I know the minister sent out a letter saying, you know, please consider a lot of things um, before you close schools, but without any money uh, or extra money to, to, to help keep some of those schools open, it's very hard for boards to to add in other things uh, to consider. Funding has been cut over the last three years uh, that used to be there that, that helped boards, allowed boards to keep, keep schools open in smaller areas. And the government felt, and they could be partly right, uh, that, that, that that extra funding kind of led people to keep schools open that should be being closed. But you're right, it's about finding that balance. And right now, I don't think that balance is there. Uh, why do you think this is happening now? It's happening now because of cuts to funds. So right now, kids are then looking at uh, figuring out their budgets for next year. They're trying to figure out how to get onto the funding formula as it, as it exists now. Uh, top-up funding was cut, which was the funding that allowed boards to keep schools open that uh, may have looked 
uh, less than full. Um, funding has been cut from a declining enrollment grant. So I think that this year all of those kind of uh, chickens are come ho- coming home to roost, if you will. Annie Kidder has been with us, Executive Director, People for Education. Annie, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, no problem. Take okay. care. It is 1256. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. You know, it is something that, it, depending on where you are, every scenario is different. Uh, but again, I, I encourage parents to get involved and uh, make their voices heard. That's how we come up with good policy. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, our prime minister down in Texas to pitch Canadian oil. What's at stake? Uh, What's the prime minister doing down there? And is it helping? I think it is. He seems, and this guy seems to be, whether you like his politics or not, he seems to be able to work a room and bridge the gap. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former liberal MP, consumer affairs critic, analyst, uh, gasbuddy.com to find out more. He's with us now. Hello, Dan. How are you today? Well, I'm fine. Uh, before we get to uh, Trudeau down in Texas, uh, can you elaborate or tell us anything more about Shell selling its interest in the oil sands? Does that say anything, or is this just a business deal? Oh, I think this is huge, and it follows a long line of uh, smaller players, but nevertheless significant ones who've made uh, you know, some pretty big investments in the Canadian oil sands, which is really the future of Canadian oil. We are nearly 4 million barrels produced a day. Uh, much of that exported to the United States where we can. Uh, but you've seen a long line and a, a list of companies that have basically said, look, uh, it's too expensive to operate in the uh, what we call the Western Cade Sedimentary Basin. It's basically the area that contains most of Canada's oil. Great promise at $8,800 a barrel. But uh, this uh, is uh, certainly a, a, sorry, a, a, an eye-popping, sobering event that happened yesterday with Shell uh, selling almost $9 billion worth of assets. Um, that's one of the companies that showed great promise in terms of uh, uh, making, advan- you know, making inroads and finding new ways to develop cleaner stra- uh, flows of energy. But uh, all have suggested that there is a very serious problem in Canada with investments. And uh, as investors can pretty much go anywhere around the world, Short of the Prime Minister intervening, there are some fundamental uh, problems that we are going to be facing. And, uh, you know, the the departure or the sale of the assets is one thing, but the impact on jobs, economic activity, and paying down the debt and deficit in this country is something that I think looms far larger, and it's one of the main reasons why I think the Prime Minister had no choice but to head down to Texas and avert uh, what could be a very... Uh, damaging economic outcome. So by going to Texas, that's how he intervenes? That's how he helps things? Uh, you know, I think it's uh, it, it's worth his effort to go down there. I commend him for that, but I think it's uh, window dressing. There are fundamental underlying problems, including the cost of labor in Canada. We can't really get around that, but there are things that he can and should be doing that government should be addressing. Two other problems have been identified to the departure of many of these companies from investments is Canada's negative regulatory environment. Um, it takes a lot. Uh, you know, they can't get access to markets, international or otherwise, not as quickly as they want, certainly. Um, and as a result, uh, the cost of extracting oil is about pretty much half of the cost of the investment. So uh, if you, uh, you you continue down this road of lengthy, protracted uh, uh, you know, uh, reviews of when pipelines and how pipelines can be reviewed or any other type of uh, development, the longer this goes and the more stakeholders that pile on, uh, the less likely it is that people are going to invest. The second problem, the climate of uncertainty. Sniping between the provinces on pipelines doesn't help 
but more importantly, if I happen to be an investor, uh, you know, I have to look at uh, new regulations around climate change policies. Those are some of the major reasons cited by companies like Shell that said, look, uh, it's not worth us, you know, spending the time uh, investing in Canadian oil, getting that to market when uh, it's going to take years for us to to get that there. I would have hoped that the Prime Minister is as busy working on getting those kind of things resolved in order to continue to serve as a force of attraction as opposed to going down there and trying to sell them something that from an investor's point of view doesn't work. Uh, and uh, give an example, he was in Texas. He only has to go to something called the Permian Basin. That's where it costs about 29% of all um, investments to bring oil out of the water, out of, out of land in Texas versus 46 here in Canada. So you can see why uh, it's a bit ironic he went to Texas. We've got to try to follow that model or we're going to wind up losing an entire industry. Uh, so is what Shell is saying here is we don't see any real profit in the next 10 years, five well, years? Yeah, I, look, the world is going to find a way to produce a lot more oil. And though probably by 2020, 2021, it keeps getting pushed out. We'll see some balancing. But OPEC has already indicated it's not prepared to go beyond uh, Jan- uh, June 1st in terms of its uh, cutback on production. And it's going to allow the market to... Uh, or the uh, well, a resumption of what we saw just last year, or the past two years, and that's a uh, you know a, an accumulation of oil that will continue to feed the glut, which will continue to depress prices, which will hurt Canada. And so, you know, there's not many easy issues out of this. This is something that really no one can can can, can anticipate or handle. But it puts Canada at a distinct disadvantage in terms of investments. Uh, we are nowhere near getting the number of uh, pipelines approved that we need to. Uh, and, of course, uh, with uh, uncertainty over carbon regulations and uh, review from the national regulators on pipeline disposition across Canada and across borders uh, being kicked down the road two or three years, it's unlikely that uh, we're going to be able to take advantage of, uh, of maintaining our economic uh, robustness in that industry, at least for the next few years. So will pipelines change this or too little, too late? They should have been done 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, we've been boasting for a long time how, how much money we have with our natural resources. Have we waited too long to get them to market? I think we're at a point where the infrastructure isn't there to support the great resources that we have. Uh, the market is certainly there, but we have uh, done ourselves no favors by falling in line with uh, a group of those who will protest simply because they don't want fossil fuels to be moved. Uh, you know, governments are moving heaven and earth and uh, trying to accommodate as many stakeholders in this. At the end of the day, however, the oil industry is, 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 is having a tough time, a tough go of it. It's not able to raise the revenue it once did. And that goes directly to job creation. It goes directly to revenue creation in this country. And it does signal that if uh, we can't seem to get one of the most important generators of wealth for our country back online, despite the tough economic headwinds and the tough numbers that we're seeing in terms of lower prices for valuation for crude, uh, well, you know, investors will take their money and go elsewhere around the world and bring oil from wherever they can get it and far more cheaper with less uh, restrictions. Obviously, this has been our golden goose for the last uh, little while. Are, are those days over? Well, I don't think they're over. I just think we have to be pragmatic about this and that uh, we're not going to change the world by assuming the sky is falling and that we have to tax uh, you know everything into oblivion. Uh, in order to satisfy a particular constituency around the world that says we can't produce fossil fuels anymore. At the end of the day, we want to move to things that are far more expensive. We know the cost of uh, going uh, green too quickly. Look at the Ontario Hydro Bills and the mess that has created. But I'm not using that as a nasty example. I'm simply saying 
we need to do this very, you know, uh, in, in step and in tune with reality. For now, a good number of U.S. refiners do bring in Canadian oil. They like Canadian oil, especially the U.S. Midwest. 70, 80 percent of all oil that is brought into that region comes from Canada. Uh, they've configured the refineries to accept Canadian heavy oil. So there's definitely a market there. It seems that we spend a lot of our time navel-gazing and saying, no, no, let's find different ways in which to block those pipelines. Let's find different ways in which to uh, to suggest that maybe we shouldn't be exporting oil at all. If that's the case, then we should stop mining and all sorts of other mineral extractions in Canada altogether, which I think would be folly. Uh, and I don't think anybody really wants to suggest, unless, of course, they are completely oblivious to how this country works and what creates and generates wealth and what maintains our standard living from coast to coast. Uh, so what are your thoughts on the Prime Minister's visit to Texas? Uh, he, he seemed, from the clips that I had seen, he's trying very hard to balance the environment and all of those other issues, but it's the number one priority is getting the resources to market. Uh, yeah. Is that going to sell down there? Well, there's a danger with biting off more than you can chew. Uh, he's right in saying a border tax won't just hurt Canadian oil producers uh, and, and exports of Canadian uh, products into the United States. It will also hurt Canadian uh, U.S. consumers. There's no doubt about that because you can't reverse what has already been in place. The Canadian oil presence in the United States has grown, and it's one that I think is uh, is generally widely po- you know positively received. But where he he tends to have mixed messages is recognizing that he can't do both things at the same time. You can't burden investors and producers with uh, unknown regulatory. Uh, um, blockages uh, caused by your you know, desire to move quickly on carbon taxes. It's nice to see you're going to put a price on it, uh, and it's quite another thing to accept the science. But for an investor and for those uh, in, in, in Western Canada who rely very much, notwithstanding the cost of uh, doing business, who do rely on uh, you know, a constant flow of, of investment and, uh, and, and revenue, we could be painting ourselves into a very serious corner. It's one that I think the Prime Minister is two horses that he can't ride at the same time. Uh, I think the carbon thing is certainly longer term, but he's not just talking carbon taxes right now. As you know, he, his minister, uh, Kathleen, uh, Catherine McKenna, Minister of the Environment and Climate Change, decided and uh, suggested within a year they would have a new Clean Fuels Standard Act. And so that would mean uh, perhaps more pressure on production, the quality of production, how it's synthesized. This all takes money. Or you shut down, and that's the concern I have. There's a, an either-or, and if we try to do it too quickly, uh, it doesn't matter how many great speeches uh, the Prime Minister is giving to whatever audience and how many standing ovations he gets for saying nice things. The facts speak for themselves. Canada is losing investment, and it is losing an important part of its, uh, of its industrial makeup. Uh, I couldn't help but noticing his comment uh, after talking about the environment and Aboriginal issues and and interprovincial issues and all this other stuff that seems to get in the way. Uh, And again, not to to make light of any of that. It's all very serious. Um, But he did underlie by saying, in the end, we must get our resources to market. Uh, you can pat it up the front end all you want, but if that's what he's saying at the back end, is it like, well, we're going to sell this, but at the end of the day, we got to get the pipelines built? Well, then he's going to have to sit down and talk to his ministers before he tries to talk to the rest of the world because yeah. it's mixed messaging. And yeah. it's mixed messaging that is setting uh, you know, a frightened type of uh, atmosphere. That what happened yesterday is not something that can be uh, easily dismissed. A company that has put a lot of money into Canadian resources is bailing out, and a lot of others have done it before them. And all of them have signaled uh, the reason is because of the uncertain environment, the inability to get access to markets, and yes, higher costs. But higher costs themselves 
uh, are something that can be worked on. The other things are two political issues that the Prime Minister has within his wheelhouse, and he ought to be using them more effectively. You can't give different messages to different audiences. And those who are saying the industry should die and go away, well, then they ought to understand how that's going to impact things like uh, you know, paying for our Medicare, paying for our national standards that we embrace so much, our equality, our desire to ensure that Canada remains uh, a place uh, that is hospitable for investment as well as a place for us to, to grow. And clearly, he's at a crossroads. He's going to have to make up his own mind. He's going to have to do that within his own cabinet because we're seeing two different messages. You do hear that a lot from this Prime Minister, don't you? He'll speak to one audience that has a certain slant and he'll speak in their language. Then he'll go across the road and speak to somebody who's on the polar opposite and, and speak their language as well. Yeah, well, that's that's his style. Uh, yeah. That's a style that apparently Canadians support. Um, that's a political uh, you know, position that he's taken. But I think we have to look at the bottom line. And I know that the Department of Finance and, and those who are realists are looking at this and they are very worried that the level of commitment to uh, investments in Canada by the government of Canada, infrastructure and otherwise, are not supportable, are not sustainable in an environment where you're losing revenue from your major revenue generator. Uh, There's an easy decision. Uh, It's not going to be politically easy. Get the pipelines approved and back off a little bit on your carbon taxes and on your wonderful uh, initiatives to try to, uh, you know, to to believe that uh, we need to somehow tackle this uh, in a way that would only hurt our own country. And I think that's two areas that he's got to deal with. He has to resolve them. If what he's saying is at the end of the day he's going to do that, then by all means make that very clear to Canadians and to uh, stakeholders in this country who blocked and really done damage to this industry and as a corollary done damage to the finances of the country. Where are we going to be on all of this in 10 years, 15 years out? Are we still going to be we still going to be having the same arguments or will they be will, will there be proof either way that this is the direction to go in? I think it has to be gradual in 10 or 15 years if that's the target we're setting. I think it's more realistic rather than trying to do it overnight. Um, and by this I mean of course the ability to to make approvals I think that are that are logical, that are consistent, that are important. Uh, and put Canada's whole interests uh, at heart. And, you know, you can bring in as many stakeholders as you want and talk about uh, public interest and talk about uh, receiving community input and, and, and community consensus. But at the end of the day, he's elected to make a decision. He was given a majority government to do the right thing for Canada. We're in tough times. I don't blame him for these problems, but he's got to be able to find a way out. And to my sense, two out of three problems that this industry and many other industries are facing uh, could be resolved by a more um, open approach. And he should take the approach to Canada, to his cabinet, and to Canadians with media, as he did in Texas yesterday. Um, what do you think Canadians are going to think and environmentalists are going to think about what his what he said in Texas? I don't know. Uh, you know, for, right now they're not going to be happy unless, of course, Canada, um, you know, uh, has a regime that uh, in which we generate revenue uh, re- and, and energy only by the use of non-fossil fuels, which I think is impossible. And, uh, and and reality is that it would be too costly. It would be prohibitive. It's going to take a lot longer to get there, maybe 50 years. Um, but the issue of use of fossil fuel oil, uh, the synthetic versions of oil and otherwise, can't be replaced overnight. Uh, it is still an important, vital commodity. Canada happens to have a lot of it, but it doesn't seem to have the... Uh, the the perspective, the clearness and vision to say this is the way ahead. We can do all those things, but they're going to happen gradually. And uh, environmentalists, uh, you know, who talk about clean environment, I'm with them. <laughs> I want to stop pollution. Yeah, most do. But 
don't say to me that CO2 is pollution, because that is fundamentally, scientifically dishonest. And, and frankly, it's part of photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That debate goes on. Um, getting back to the purchase of Shell, uh, obviously it was purchased by somebody, a smaller player in this case. Um, what does that say? I mean, it, it, does it does it mean less for Canada? Just be like it wasn't like they abandoned it; they sold it. There's other people there, but obviously yeah. a smaller production. Yeah, I mean it's uh, Canadian Natural Resources, which uh, has taken up and bought a lot of. Uh, uh, assets probably at fire sale prices. Uh, they're not likely to be able to capitalize on it. I don't think they're well capitalized. If a big company like Shell says we're out, then where do you get the money from investors to continue? What they've done is they've sold uh, the idea, the concept as it stands now, perhaps at a discounted rate. Uh, it's the best time for these larger companies to get out. But that tells the larger investment community that it's not a great time to be investing in Canada. It doesn't really matter who the acquirer is. Uh, whether or not they can maintain these projects is quite another matter. There was a very interesting sale last year by the Koch Oil. Now, right. Of course, it's controversial brothers, but uh, they were operating uh, part of the uh, SAGD, SAGD uh, operation, which basically involves a very state-of-the-art type of extraction of crude oil. Uh, they bailed, and uh, there aren't many takers on that front. It just means heavily heavy investments into future type of technologies and investments are, are quickly escaping. I think the industry understands that it has to make some changes that uh, reflect fundamentals in terms of uh, uh, expectations on cleaner energy, but they can't happen overnight. And if you hammer these guys over the head with a mallet, they're going to walk, and they will go to another country that can produce a lot of oil. And they, at last I checked, there's a lot of other countries doing just that. Is the reason that Trudeau went to Texas due to the Shell sale? No, I don't think so. This was planned before, yeah. but make no mistake, he's worried sick about the national finances taking a major hit. Uh, he can't support the programs that he has put forward ambitiously, uh, put the country into debt deficit, and then exceed those uh, those targets. What happens in those kind of circumstances is that if revenue falls, and he continues to spend more than he's taking in, and we incur re- deficits that won't go away in 2022, but in, rather in 2050, he may start to see something that none of us want to anticipate, and that's higher mortgage rates, higher interest rates, the very thing that hobbled us back in 1980-81. I know, I worked for uh, his father as a small intern uh, working for the housing minister in 1981-82 when people were walking with the keys in their hands, throwing it in their constituency office saying, you own the home now since we have 24% interest rates. I'm not talking about alarmism here, but the reality is that the national finances of this country are in really shaky shape, and a lot of it to do with the fact that some of this is self-inflicted. Hmm. Like a lot of things in Canada. Uh, Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP, consumer affairs critic, analyst, uh, gas analyst, gasbuddy.com to find out more. Dan, as always, thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. Much. Have a great weekend. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.